this year's European Society for Radiotherapy and Oncology, ESTRO, annual congress took place in Copenhagen, Denmark, from the 6th to 10th of May 2022. Many significant trial updates were presented at the congress, and the future directions for radiation oncology research were discussed. Dr. Francesco Cortiula of the University Hospital of Udine discussed a phase two trial which compared the effects of proton therapy and concurrent chemotherapy on hematological toxicity in stage three non-small cell lung cancer. The rationale of our study was to um, compare the proton therapy to photon therapy in a stage three non-small cell lung cancer treated with concurrent chemotherapy with a focus on hematological toxicity. Since uh, proton therapy has pecu peculiar um, physics properties that uh, allow them to better, um, to better focus the radiation at the target while sparing uh, organ at risk. And since uh, concurrent chemotherapy is a toxic treatment, uh, we, would we would like to understand whether protons might spare toxicities, particularly hematological toxicity. And uh, the primary endpoint of our study was the incidence of uh, grade three or worse lymphopenia during concurrent chemotherapy. We enrolled 169 patients, 35 treated with protons and uh, 134 treated with photons. The two treatment arms were uh, well balanced regarding disease uh, stage, uh, gender, um, histological uh, subtype of the tumor, uh, age and also gross tumor volume. Uh, what we found was that proton therapy could indeed spare uh, hematological toxicity since proton-treated patients experienced significantly lower incidence of lymphopenia grade three or worse during treatment. 46% in the proton arm compared to 75% in the photon arm. So the primary endpoint of the study was met and the protons also show to spare uh, the incidence of severe anemia. And also the patients treated with protons uh, presented with better performance status 21 days after the end of concurrent chemotherapy. Uh, yeah, on top of that, what we did uh, to also me mechanistically explain our results was to uh, analyze the DDH parameters. And we see that uh, lymphopenia was correlated with uh, the bone marrow doses. So the radiation dose delivered to the bone marrow, particularly V4, V5, V10, and V20. And afterwards, we also compared the protons versus photons treatment plans. And we, we, and we showed that uh, protons spared the bone marrow. So less lymphopenia in the proton treatment arms was correlated with less bone marrow radiation dose delivered with protons. So that explained our results. Future direction would be, uh, you know, just understand if this uh, reduced rate of lymphopenia would translate in some uh, clinical meaningful benefit for the patients, like better survival, better um, response to immune therapy, which is the adjuvant treatment after concurrent chemotherapy. And of course, if so, then that will lead to some uh, treatment optimization, also taking the bone marrow in, into account. Dr. Luca Nicosia of IRCCS Sacro-Core Don Calabria Hospital explained the red lightsaber study, which involved patients affected by oligometastatic colorectal cancer, and gave us an update on the key results from the study. I presented at Destro the early results from the red lightsaber study 
which is a secondary analysis of the original lightsaber study, a multicenter international study on patients affected by lung or oligometastasis from colorectal cancer. In the original lightsaber study, um, the, uh, the main, uh, the, the primary point uh, was the local control, and we were also able to identify predictive factors of it. The secondary point was instead the uh, time to the polymetastatic progression, which was defined as the occurrence of more than five new oligometastatic uh, metastatic lesions. And we were able to identify some factors of polymetastatic progression, which were the number of metastases, stratified as one, two, three, and four, five, and lesion diameter. However, we didn't uh, uh, evaluate the interplay between these two factors. And this is the goal of the red lightsaber study. So what we made is to combine these two factors, so the number of metastases with the cumulative GTB volume, and we were able to stratify patients and, and, and to determine different uh, behavior of the disease in progressing to the polymetastatic disease. So patients with a small tumor load and uh, with a few number of metastases and with a small tumor volume had a very low, uh, had a very long time to the polymetastatic progression. We identified several risk classes where the risk is the one of polymetastatic progression. For example, patients in the low risk group had one to three metastases and the cumulative GTB volume lower than 15.6 cubic centimeters. In, fabric, in the intermediate group, we had patients with one to three metastases with a cumulative tumor volume larger than 15.6 uh, cubic centimeter. And in the high-risk population, we had patients with four or five metastases regardless of, of tumor volume. So, uh, the conclusion of the study is, the, is that the oligometastatic state is not an all or nothing phenomenon, it's a more complex disease. And as clinicians, we should pursue a personalized approach that takes into account several factors other than the sole number. Uh, so we were able to identify uh, different potential population subgroups. Some of them seems more um, uh, seems to benefit more from local treatments while other seems to rapidly progress to the polymetastatic disease, so amenable, um, amenable only of uh, uh, systemic treatment only. Um, and this is in summary the results of the study. Dr. Nicosia also outlined a recent multi-institutional study on oligoprogressive breast cancer patients treated with stereotactic body radiotherapy and concomitant systemic therapy. A recent experience from uh, our institution is a multi-institutional study on oligoprogressive breast cancer patients treated with uh, uh, stereotactic body radiotherapy and concomitant systemic therapy. This study was conducted in a, uh, at the multi-institutional multi level uh, between uh, different Italian um, uh, institutions. And we evaluated the data of 79 oligoprogressive breast cancer patients, accounting for 153 oligometastatic lesions. The primary point was the time to the next systemic treatment. So we wanted to explore how SBRT was able to delay the start of a new systemic therapy in a, uh, in a population of oligometastatic patients. Uh, treated with SBRT during the first or the second uh, treatment uh, treatment cycle, treatment line. 
um, the, uh, we in, in the overall population, we were we uh, showed that uh, uh, this endpoint, the time to the next systemic treatment that we call as NEST, uh, had the median of eight months. Uh, in the multivariate analysis, we find that uh, the uh, the only significant factors of um, of, of a, a longer time to the next systemic treatment was the number of treated oligometastases. In particular, patients with more than one oligometastatic lesions had had a, a significantly worse uh, and shorter nest time to the next systemic treatment. Uh, this is interesting since we uh, actually we consider oligometastatic disease as a, 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 as, a, as a unique uh, entity uh, where the number of metastases is the same in any setting. So they can be free, they can be five. But um, what we are discovering in the clinical practice and also in the, in the research in the research, the research setting is that probably each disease have a different behavior. And for example, in these settings, probably patients, uh, patients with oligometastatic breast cancer that can benefit more from SBRT are the one with just one metastasis, probably. Um, there are few published studies yet on the oligometastatic breast cancer. Uh, and so this study um, can be of value since it adds more to the role of local treatment also in this disease. Dr. Tiure Kroos of University Medical Center, Utrecht, discussed a study comparing the outcomes of patients with stage four esophagogastric cancer and patients with only limited metastatic disease to various disease management strategies. In the past, um, the idea was that if you have stage four disease, uh, that people are, have no hope and that all, all these patients will die. And now uh, in recent, um, recent studies uh, have shown that if you have a select group of patients with only limited metastatic disease, that if you go for a radical approach, uh, that the overall survival in these patients is um, yeah, better, uh, better than we know from the literature. And uh, that was the rationale to start of this study. So in the study, we looked at um, patients with stage four esophageal gastric cancer, um, one of the diseases with a very poor overall survival, generally in stage four. And then we looked at patients with only limited metastatic disease, and uh, we looked at the outcomes of these patients who underwent treatments um, with a radical approach. So metastectomy or stereotactic body radiation therapy um, or who underwent uh, systemic therapy alone or, or no treatments um, in order to compare the effect of uh, different management uh, strategies to this uh, disease. So in this uh, multicenter study, we uh, included 200 patients with uh, oligometastatic esophagogastric cancer. And um, we saw that the biggest group of patients, so approximately 40% underwent local treatment for oligometastatic disease alone. Uh, 20%, approximately 20% underwent local treatment plus systemic therapy. 25% um, of patients underwent um, uh, uh, best supportive care. And uh, one of the main results was that the patients who underwent a form of systemic therapy combined with local treatment had the best overall survival. Um, we also saw that in this group, the progression-free survival was best. Um, and um, we also saw this uh, confirmed in a multivariable analysis. So we uh, tried to adjust for several confounders like uh, the number of metastases, performance status. And also in this multivariable analysis, we saw that the overall survival in this group was, uh, was best. Um, and um, yeah, this suggests it perhaps could be the preferred uh, treatment approach to these patients. 
Um, this is of course based on a, on a retrospective analysis. So um, yeah, we, you're not able to adjust for all confounders. So it has to be confirmed like a randomized setting. So that was one, uh, one of the main findings. And the other main finding was that um, we also looked at the incidence of oligometastatic disease. So we looked at all patients with metastatic esophageal uh, gastric cancer. And then we looked how many of these people have oligometastatic disease. So this limited metastatic disease form. And that was approximately 20%, uh, 25%. And this was comparable between the two uh, centers. So we looked at the incidence in uh, the University Hospital in Zurich. And we also looked at this incidence in, um, in the University Hospital in the Netherlands, in Utrecht. And we saw that this incidence rate was comparable between the two centers. Um, and this was also an interesting uh, result because uh, previously uh, no other studies had looked at this incidence uh, of, of oligometastatic disease. We also spoke to Professor Pedro Lara of Fernando Pessoa Canaries University and San Roque University Hospital about the importance of patient-reported outcomes in clinical follow-ups. Well, I think that uh, uh, in our clinical investigation, clinical trials, we used to look a lot to uh, response or toxicity as scored by the doctors, but uh, we have to remind that uh, the final uh, target of our trials is the patient, and the patient uh, needs to be, uh, you know, addressed in order to know which is the real feeling of the patient about the treatment and about the results. So uh, it's important to assess patient-reported outcomes. And uh, also it's important to make these patient-reported outcomes in an easy way for the patient. Not, uh, uh, this is why uh, there's uh, some initiatives to develop uh, apps to uh, you know, record these patient-reported outcomes at home, so the patient are more freely to express their, their, their feelings, the, you know, their, their, their concerns. Uh, if they are not in front of the doctor, that they don't want to disappoint the doctor. So I think this is uh, the major uh, issue that we treat to to develop in this session. Two things for me are very important. The first one is that we doctors have to to really understand that this is the major endpoint of our work, that are patients, so that we need to know what patients thinks it is the result of the treatment protocol. So for that, we need uh, probably the, the, an easy way to score these uh, feelings uh, as objective as possible, and then, um, also to make available to the scientific society. So it means that probably under electronic uh, uh, you know, uh, tools. But the question is that beside that, uh, using electronic tools and apps and so on, it's also important to realize that most of our patients at the moment have cancer over 60 or over 65, and probably they are not so familiar with using these apps uh, for the daily life, so we are in a in, in a in a in a moment where we have we we know that we have to look for uh, these patient reported outcomes that we have to do it in most of our patients that we should do it in an easy way, but probably we still are related to some person to person relation because a, a relevant part of our patient are not so familiar with. Uh, apps for uh, electronic recording of the patient reported outcomes. 
Finally, Professor David Dearnley of the Institute of Cancer Research and the Royal Marston NHS Foundation Trust discussed the future of radiotherapy for treating patients with prostate cancer. There's two ways of, of two um, prongs to answering that. Um, and I'm going to start off with the um, radiotherapy for metastatic disease. Um, what to many people surprise has happened as part of the Medical Research Council Stampede study is that the um, patients who had metastatic disease uh, presentation, um, when they were given radiotherapy to their primary tumour, if they had a relatively limited amount of metastatic disease, let us say less than three or less bone metastases, their survival outcome was improved. So not just their biochemical failure outcome, but their survival outcome was improved. And that is now standard of care. So that should, all patients with limited amounts of metastatic disease should have their prostate, uh, prostate treated with local uh, radiotherapy. I know there are some urologists who want to do prostatectomies, but there's actually no evidence that doing the surgery um, has the same benefit. So I think that's a very exciting and important result. The next study um, that is being done by the Stampede Group um, is to um, treat oligometastatic disease. Now, that is disease where there are a small number of metastases, and you can define it as three, four, five, six metastases, and, and, and there's some variability on how's that done. But this, again, will be a randomized trial. The oligometastatic disease will be treated, and it's going to be very interesting to see whether that actually improves long-term outcome as well. Um, it, it, it's just slightly analogous to the PROMPS trial because that is treating the bigger areas of metastatic disease with radiotherapy and actually having some advantage for the patients, not a survival advantage on that, on that occasion. So I think that's going to be very important. The other aspect to treating uh, metastatic disease with radiotherapy is with the um, targeted um, isotope treatment, the uh, prostate-specific membrane ant antigen lutetium uh, targeted therapy, where um, uh, PSMA-positive cancers, and most cancers, most prostate cancers are PSMA-positive, they take up the antibody at, um, attached to the isotope, and so uh, disease at all sites within the body are treated. So I think that is a very... Um, uh, promising avenue of research in the future. And um, there are negotiations underway at the moment to see whether or not that can be included uh, in the Medical Research Council Stampede trial. So I think there are really very exciting um, uh, prospects for expanding the role of radiotherapy. Um, and that would be in castration-sensitive disease. Um, there's also... Um, work to continue on treating castration-resistant oligometastatic disease. So to see whether or not trying to focus on um, sites of uh, particular uh, problems patients is going to produce a longer-term benefit. Um, but there's, there's preliminary evidence that that actually is quite likely to be successful. And the good thing is, particularly when you use the more... Um, uh, technically advanced stereotactic body radiotherapy techniques is that you don't cause really any significant side effects for the patients. Um, it's actually for the patients is a very simple and quick treatment. Um, unlike 
um, chemotherapy particularly, but also the longer term effects of hormone therapy can be can be um, really quite um, uh, significant in, in some patients. Um, it, it may just be another new weapon in the armamentarium, uh, which I think is very positive. So that's metastatic disease. In localized disease, um, there has been a transformation in treatment over the last 20 years. Um, and we've moved through a succession of technological innovations um, from the old standard radiotherapy to shaped beams using conformal radiotherapy to super shaped beams using what we call intensity modulated radiotherapy, where we can pretty well produce whatever shape of high dose uh, that we want. And in parallel with that, there have been image guidance techniques introduced, um, fiducial marker placements, but in many ways, most excitingly now is the uh, beginnings of the um, uh, serious research using the uh, MR-guided uh, linear accelerators. Um, now, that allows you to uh, not only see the cancer while you're treating it and adapt the treatment very, very precisely to exactly where it is, um, it means actually you can, you, you can change the treatment actually while you're giving it, potentially, because along with these technological advances in engineering and treatment delivery, the huge increase in um, computer speeds allowing us to do um, what I can call real-time treatment planning. So actually, instead of taking you know, two hours to plan a patient um, using uh, the old planning computers, this can now be done in a few seconds. Um, so it, 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 it's like many other aspects of life that the computer speeds have just revolutionized what one can do. Um, and the, um, the challenge now is to harness those increased technological computer uh, possibilities with imaging, because um, if you want to treat a cancer with radiotherapy, the best thing to do is to be able to see it. Uh, if you can't see it, it's, it's a bit uh, like shooting in the dark. So. So imaging is terribly important. And then we, the, the technology actually to deliver the very, very precise radiotherapy. Now, all of that is actually coming together. Um, and that gives us a very, very exciting uh, era over the next 10 years, particularly because um, we've learned from the trials that we've done um, that we can start to reduce the number of treatments, radiotherapy treatments or fractions that we give. So this used to be up to about 40 treatments per patient to give a radical curative dose. Um, that, uh, because of the, the CHIP trial with which I was involved, was came down to 20 treatments. Um, there are studies now using, already reported using seven treatments, which looked to be successful. Big trial, the PACE trial, coming down to five treatments and that's going to report within the next two years. So that means you can use all of this fancy new technology. You don't give 40 treatments, you give five treatments. That is hugely better for patients. And it's actually hugely helpful to um, uh, the uh, use of health resources. And when we came down from um, um, about 37 treatments to 20, we in re it reckoned in the UK that we were saving about 30 million a year. So not only you saving money, but you are actually giving more access to other cancers because the radiotherapy machines weren't being so fully utilized um, for prostate cancer. And in the UK, about 28% of the um, 
radiotherapy machine usage was for prostate cancer. Breast cancer a bit higher, but um, those two uh, were uh, considerably over 60% of the total use of, of radiotherapy machines. So bringing the number of fractions down in both prostate and the same things happening in breast cancer is really very important. And, and if you're health planning, you need to be thinking ahead of actually how to um, guide the purchase and use of such resources in the future. Now, the current trials that are <coughs> being explored are uh, in uh, infancy, but trying to bring the treatments down from five fractions to three or two fractions. Um, so that is um, uh, potentially really a very major step. The other bit of imaging and technology that, that, that I think is very important is that for the first time using MR, you can actually see the cancer within the prostate gland. So in the past, you treated the whole prostate gland to the same dose, um, and uh, that's what everybody did. And in fact, that's still what virtually everybody does now. Now, we, on an MRI scan, um, uh, you can see the cancer within the prostate, and it's usually not in all of the prostate. It may only be in a very you know, 10% of it. And it, you can then actually concentrate more dose on that area. And our preliminary results suggest that um, the recurrence rates um, really do come down to a very, very low level. So with, you know, we were down to about 4% in, in uh, the presentation that my uh, colleague, um, Julia Murray, uh, gave, um, compared to about 10% um, without such um, uh, fine tuning of the image guidance. Now, that was so successful that we actually decided that we couldn't do the next step and put the dose up any higher because we, we couldn't do any better. Um, that may change with more follow-up, but at the moment, we think actually we've reached the, the, uh, an ideal dose and we don't need to go any further. What we do want to do is see if we can't actually take those number of fractions down using those very detailed image guidance techniques uh, from, from 20, which is what we were re reporting in ESTRO this year, um, down to five and maybe even lower than five. So there's, there's a, a very exciting decade ahead um, for radiotherapy. That wraps up our walk through some of the significant trial updates presented at ESTRO 2022. There was lots more brilliant research presented at the conference, so take a look at vjoncology.com to find more interviews and discussions. If you want to hear more from us, then check out our podcasts, which can be found on our website and streaming on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more of the latest updates in oncology research.